Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone. We're going to finish our conversation with Cicely Havert and dig into the role of safety, in particular around promoting activity and also in the words and the the language that we use when we talk with patients who are experiencing uh, chronic pain. I've talked about this important framework uh, around safety when we interact with individuals uh, in previous podcasts, but it's kind of interesting to actually talk to colleagues who also recognize the importance of this concept. Often our brains feel a lot of danger when we're experiencing pain, so building trust and promoting safety are key to advancing conversations with patients to help them find hope in recovery and improving their quality of life. So welcome back, Cicely. Let's dig in. One of the experiences, and I'm not sure, this would be really interesting to pick your brain on this one too. So one of the experiences that I have observed uh, in patients with a lived experience of chronic pain around opiate analgesics is that it's very different in terms of how they use them and the type that they use versus those when I think about my palliative care population. So one of the things that became very apparent to me is that Patients with a lived experience of chronic pain often focused more on the use of short-acting opiate analgesics. And whereas, you know, if I take a palliative care patient with a life-limiting illness and they're, you know, initially we we initiate them on short-acting and switch them to long-acting, their pain gets better. But oftentimes, I don't know if you've had this experience, so hopefully I'm not, uh, but but oftentimes when you switch the patient with chronic pain over to long-acting, they absolutely hate it. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you've seen that in your patient population or, or have read anything about that. Uh, and then what I can do is just explain to you what I think is going on. But um, and I've kind of looked a little bit at this, but I'd be interested in your thoughts. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I think, you know, being that I'm not a pain management doctor, I do have patients with chronic pain. So a lot of the uh, the management and use of the opioids, you know, opiates to um, manage the the pain is done by the pain medicine specialists. Again, you know, being in the D.C. area, I have the luxury of oh, wow. <laughs> compartmentalizing, <Yeah. laughs> compartmentalizing. And so, you know, as a primary care doctor, you know, I'm there a lot, uh, you know, a lot of times to to support and help the patients sort of understand their experience that they're that they're going through. Okay. But um, but yeah, you know, it's you know, it's it's an interesting, you know, just the effects that opioids have on the brain and the, um, you know, and I've done, I've read certain studies about the the sensitization that can yeah. actually occur. And I'm not sure if this is, you know, kind of where we're going or this is. Well, it's, it's one of it. the factors that you have yeah. to bring into it is the process oh, of sensitization. But um, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And just sort of, you know, how it's really interesting because the, that actually can enhance, you mm-hmm. know, being on, being on chronic opiates can actually enhance the pain sen- yeah. sensitization process somewhat. And so I, I'm thinking that, you know, just going between the long acting and the short acting probably plays somewhat in that, you know, in in, in some of that, those loops. Yeah. So the, and actually the opiate induced sensitization or opiate induced hyperalgesia, we see a lot in the palliative care population. So I'm always mm-hmm. doing rotations over to methadone and things like that. Yes. But yep. what, what I've, what I've observed, which I think um, I, and it's something that I think is important for us to recognize. I mean, the brain learns very quickly what works and what doesn't. And Mm -hmm. with short-acting opioids, what you see is this very rapid onset. 
Um, and so the patient gets relief. And so the brain says, good, this is, this is what I need. But of course, what happens, not because of the patient, but because of the nature of the medication. So this is when we bring in the pharmacokinetics is that they're going to, hundred percent of them are going to develop tolerance. hundred percent are going to get dependency and hundred percent are going to experience withdrawal. So it's this up and down effect, but as soon as they take the medication, it reinforces, yes, this is what I need. And so when we switch them to long acting, they can't feel it working. And so they get very frustrated, even if you're doing a, an equal uh, dosing, right? So the morphine equivalent dosing, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the same for both. And when you try and point it out to them and they're just like, there's no way, it's not the same drug, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. it's, um, but it is, it's fascinating to me. And, uh, you know, obviously there are major problems to leave them on that. And it's so disruptive for their sleep, right? Because they're constantly going in withdrawal. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's, and that's just the thing, you know, just, you know, if you're on the short acting throughout the day, it's true, you know, and I actually, I just had a, a patient recently who started experiencing this, experiencing this, who she was on the, the short acting throughout the day and just really, yeah. and she kept complaining. She's like, I just wake up in the middle of the night in pain. And when I start to realize it's like, well, yeah. I, I, you know, let's, let's, let's talk about this a little bit. I said, I'm not sure if this is the best way to be managing your pain because in just to, to that effect. Yeah, know, exactly. Just, so yeah, we sometimes on the wrong type of medication. Yeah. So sometimes. Sometimes we, we don't see that. This is where the benzos get added in because the patient comes mm-hmm. in. So the common question is, I can't sleep, doc. You know, yep. can you give me something to help me sleep? And so you've got to explore that. But I also find that exploring sleep with patients can also be a gateway into um, sort of going into adverse childhood experiences. But it also helps in terms of how mm-hmm. we look at pharmacotherapy. So when a patient says to me, doc, I can't sleep. Then my question back to them always is, were you ever a good sleeper as a kid? And so it's one of those questions that patients sit there. So probably about 40% will say never slept as a kid. So one of the things I try and get them to explore is that, so when you were a kid, you know, was there a lot of disruption in your life? And it didn't have to be major disruption. You know, were you bullied at school? You know, Mm -hmm. did you, you know, your brothers fight? Or did you feel safe in the environment that you were in? Because often kids will actually... Um, uh, you know, they'll they'll retrain their brain to stay awake, to stay alive if, if the environment doesn't feel safe. And yes. uh, so I had a really interesting case of a woman, she was 82, and uh, we sort of were exploring some of this and, and some of the stuff that was so vivid to her, you know, when she was a child. And so the, the value, I think, especially if there are some night terrors, which this particular woman did, is that you can introduce medications that are much safer, safer like Prazosin. And, uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I just, that's so funny. I just had this conversation with another one of my chronic pain patients who's has a lot of actually um, medical trauma. She, yeah. uh, she oh, was yeah. diagnosed with, uh, with a, basically it's a muscular dystrophy um, type of condition and her muscles are basically becoming calcified. And so <sighs> she's, as she, she's gone through life, she has this chronic pain, but as a child, she had a lot of uh, interventions that were very, very scary to her. And, you know, as a child, you know, she just felt very vulnerable and felt like she couldn't say no. Yeah. So now she has this very uh, distinct traumatic you know these these memories, these adverse adverse childhood um, experiences, and the, the trauma is is really it, it's it, it's challenging because now you know trying to provide her medical care is is difficult, yeah. just because you know every you know every procedure, every little thing you try to do, it's it's you know it's met with some sort of um, distrust. 
in a yeah. way. Well, and um, and we just we just and she's been having lots of issues with her sleep, and that's this is that's exactly the the medication we just talked about. So yeah, we'll so see what her therapist has to say on that. Yeah, <laughs> she wanted to well, talk it, but over. but it's a, it's such an important question to ask patients around yeah. sleep. So just in terms of, but it's also a, a beautiful gateway into uh, the adverse childhood experiences sometimes as well. But you bring up a really important point, Cicely. So when my colleagues, when I my colleagues are, um, so when I think about um, trying to. Um, develop sort of a, you know, because obviously we don't have all the training in the world and everything, but the way I try and get my colleagues to think about how we manage or how we communicate or how we recommend, you know, things to help patients move forward, we have to do it through a lens of safety. So mm-hmm. the, the words we use, the activities that we recommend, you know, or the safety and the, the, like, I think about things like activity. So how would you get someone uh, and maybe I'll ask you, because we know, I mean, the, 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 the evidence, even da- through Dr. Koronik's uh, work, is that the recommendations are really about how do we get people moving and not in a way that we want to think about, you know, running marathons and things, but how do we not, help patients yeah. with chronic pain feel safe moving, but also uh, in ways that um, they can feel that uh, they're, they're starting to accomplish something? Because it is really hard to get patients to, who are living with chronic pain to move. Right. Oh, absolutely. Because movement equals pain, which is sort yeah. of a, a negative reinforcement, right? But uh, you yeah. know, it's almost you know, the what I try to uh, introduce to patients and encourage them to at least consider, you know, is, is almost to go through a desensitization mm-hmm. process towards movement and pain. And so there's going to be, you know, obviously you don't want someone who basically sits and doesn't move and is or is afraid to move stays inside all day. You know, that's. You know, you don't want to suddenly say, okay, we'll get up and, and you know, and, and run three miles. I mean, that that's not going to happen. I mean, it might right. just be changing the environment instead of sitting inside. Why don't you go sit outside? You know, yeah. just change the environment. Just sort of, you know, just to, well, okay, I can do this. Or, you know, get up, you know, stand up and then sit down. Mm-hmm. Just and, and it, sometimes it's it's these baby steps and just realizing and yeah and it, it there there will be some discomfort usually with that and you know so it's not to say this is is necessarily going to be easy, but. It, it reassuring that it will get easier yeah. and uh, just taking it very, very slowly. And like you said, just, just offering that safe space to, to try this. And, you know, a patient that you just meet or maybe you don't know very well may not trust you enough mm. to, to take your advice and do that. And so it's not something you'd necessarily even recommend first thing. Um, once, once patients start to trust you, you know, the, the, it, it might be more effective. Yeah, absolutely. So the 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 lens, I mean, that building of the trust and the, the lens of safety, I think is so important also around the joy of movement. So, you know, I mean, they're absolutely, more likely. Yeah. To, so if the move, so a, a great example that we had was um, um, a woman who uh, was spending way too much time sort of lying down. So she was spending a lot of time recovering. Um, but that felt like the safest place for her. So we, you know, not only was were we trying to find a way of for to get her to safely move, but where did she feel the safest in doing the activity? And so one of the ways was uh, to allow her to lie down, but just even to move her arms like you would something like Tai Chi, you know, just something very gentle exactly. that felt safe in that position and then trying to move her forward. Um, uh, but trying not to link it. The other thing that I, that I find really kind of disheartening um, is when physicians start to push. So we want people moving, but we don't want to attach things like, well, this is, you know, you've got too much weight on, you need to lose this weight. Mm. um, And this is going to make your heart better. And you need to use a tracker. And you, I mean, some of those trackers can be helpful, but they can also create uh, a feeling of failure for some patients. They, you know, especially if they have perfectionist tendencies, right? 
So, which, but we, which pro- many of them do. Because yes, like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so being able to link it to things that are just about the joy of moving and, and the safety it feels to move in that position. I mean, we have to start somewhere. Yeah. One the- yeah. And one thing I will add is that that just reminded me, I have another patient who uh, trying to find ways to, to help her move and feel safe in that is, and um, she's a little bit younger and she loves video games. Yeah. And so we decided, well, why don't we try virtual reality? Yes. And so but you actually have to get up and move. And it's interesting. And, you know, and she and this is something she looks forward to. But the other thing that I I find very interesting about it is that she says when she's in in her world, in her virtual reality world, she doesn't necessarily feel the pain or it's not as intense. And then so I want I like to go back to that. Well, why do you think that is? Mm. You know, it's interesting. She's Mm. and then she said to herself, because I'm not that person anymore. Ah, interesting. And I think from a psychological standpoint, that's really fascinating. But, I, yeah. you know, what I do like to do is just to point out, say, well, look, you did it. And you did it. And, you know, even though, you know, you didn't, you know, in that moment, you weren't feeling pain. But, yeah. you know, let, let, let's remember that, you know, maybe this is possible. Yeah. But it's, yeah, yeah that's, it's, it's very complicated. Well, but it, it's also an opportunity because what that tells me is, so it's helping them to sort of be able to differentiate between what is neuroplastic pain and what mm-hmm. is structural yes. pain. Exactly. And, and so that that classic symptom of when I'm doing something that feels joyful to my body or, or something I want to do, I actually don't feel pain. That's neuroplastic. And so exactly. helping them understand, okay, so making that distinction between the two is going to be really important. The other thing that... Um, because of because of that fear, and it's not the fear of movement, it's really the fear of worsening pain if they move. Exactly. And uh, yes. so one of the things that um, I have found really helpful, so I, I, the way I, I, the way I kind of frame it sometimes too, because I, I do think that there are places for interventional medicine, obviously if we, around structural stuff, but I want people to understand why those structural triggers are actually happening. So one of the things that happens uh, when we experience pain, not only does our brain want to pay attention, it also wants us, it also wants to protect that area, but it also wants yes. relief from the pain. So that's it. I always say survival first, protection second, and seek relief third. So exactly, when we're seeking, yeah, yeah. yeah. So when we're seeking relief, we're looking for calming techniques. And one of them is a pain protective behavior where we sort of hunch forward. I always tell patients that humans are hedgehogs, right? We kind of come forward. <laughs> So, but what that does is it actually uh, puts about, a, I think it's about 42 pounds of extra weight on our hips and our knees and our shoulders. And I think it's why we see so much, you know, someone that started with low back pain at a very young age and why we're seeing them in the 70s with significant, uh, you know, wear and tear of their knees and hips is because our brain learns to stay in those tuck positions. So sometimes when I try and get people to correct that, you know, coming, you know, just putting their arms behind their back and bringing their shoulders out is that they're going to feel it's like trying to fit into an orthotic right when you try and correct the posture it's going to hurt it's going to hurt it's going to feel very strange (laughs) yes but that's a good hurt and so what they need to be able to do is to say ah okay these are my muscles that are working again I don't need because a lot of people say well it just makes everything worse when I do that but if Mm -hmm. they frame it in a way that makes them feel safe that this is just my muscles starting to engage and if they need to come back come back I mean it's whatever they feel to do but it's that self-talk piece that okay this is the neuroplastic piece that you know my muscles are well well well, actually it's the 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 corrective uh, maneuvers are usually the muscles starting to move again because they haven't been moved in that direction (laughs) that's why I I look at these commercials 
commercials now. And I think, God, I should have thought of that. These upright walkers and these upright canes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because helping people get upright. And I think, God, somebody was thinking. <laughs> no, and, I, what I, and what I love about the neuroplasticity part and, you know, is, is just helping people understand the control that they may have over, yeah. over the situation. Because a lot of times people in chronic pain just feel out of control or feel, you know, just devastated that they can't do anything, that their body is broken somehow. Yeah. And by helping them see that there are other methods and ways that you can improve your pain experience is, is you know, is, is enlightening for some, but it's interesting because there's some patients who have a really hard time understanding that. I have a patient who really, you know, I try to explain this in lots of different ways, but she, what she hears all the time is you're just telling, and going back to what we said before, you're just telling me this is all in my head. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And that is, you know, and you know, yeah. you're trying, even though how, how, however many times you say, no, this is, you know, your pain yeah. experience is real. What yeah. you're experiencing is absolutely real. We just need to find, you know, that we just have to figure out ways that, that you can help yourself. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah. there's really psychologically, so, it's, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. To, well, <laughs> to some, apart, somebody sure. said to me, well, it's not in your head, but it's in your brain in the sense yes. that a hundred percent of pain is processed in our brain. That's for all That's of us, it. not just people who are living yep. with, uh, chronic pain is that our brain plays a really important role. So, you know, by not going there, I think that's the missing link. And I, what I'm seeing with uh, some of the non-invasive neuroimaging is that, hey, you know, this is an area that we have to include. You know, we can still c- include these, uh, you know, interventional things that might be helping structural triggers, but they're not going to do anything for your neuroplastic component. If no, you want to no. get your chronic pain better, you have to go into those areas. And so that pain reprocessing therapy I think is and it's very it's really interesting Cicely when I look at it it is a you talked about desensitization well that's literally what it is you know when we think yes. about fear of you know flying or fear of um, I, I mean there's all, I mean humans can be afraid of anything I mean we can all think of something so the brain learns to be afraid of pain but it also learns to avoid worsening pain so it does require almost like a desensitization um, so it's kind of interesting the other thing that I was interested in, because I know nothing about this area, is hypnosis. Do you do hypnosis in your practice? I, I don't do hypnosis. However, uh, I have a fantastic psychotherapist that I work with okay. that does a lot of hypnosis. And that's primarily all that he does. And he, you know, he started uh, using hypnosis in, in treatment of anxiety, depression, uh, you know, mood disorders, and then moved, interestingly, to um, treatment of irritable bowel and um, chronic abdominal pain and IBS. It, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so he and he, you know, and I think, you know, now the, the research is just showing us, you know, the brain gut connection, you know, we say that yep. the gut is, you know, our second brain and everything. And right. just realizing that, you know, using hypnosis was really helpful in treating IBS. And so then he, you know, went beyond just, you know, treating of IBS to treatment of chronic pain. And, and yeah, and hypnosis is interesting, you know, it's, you know, I don't practice it, but it's, it's essentially just putting yourself into a trance state. Mm-hmm. And, you know, dis- disconnecting, disassociating a little bit, but you also gain a lot more control over other areas of your brain. Mm. How, how do you do you know how it's different from mindfulness? Is it just a deeper kind of, of uh, a presence? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it is a little bit different. I mean, I think that, you know, being in the present state, I think that part is similar. However, there's a little bit more 
control. You know, I think we talked a little bit about turning the volume up and turning the volume down on, on, on the pain experience, especially. With hypnosis, you're in a state where you can almost manually, I guess not manually, it's all in your head, but just turning down the volume. And he will take you through a guided hypnosis to you just you to turn the volume down literally on on the pain experience and you know he'll take people into trance and then take them out and you know rate the pain from before they went into trance to after and mm. it's it's different and maybe it is it is probably a form of mindfulness but there's there's a little bit more happening yeah. and ultimately what what Dr. Navidi tries to do and other people who do hypnosis is not necessarily you know I bring you in and I lay you down on the <laughs> on the couch yeah. and we go into a hypnotic state it's training people to go into a trance state or hypnotic state on their own yes and treating themselves throughout the day i mean we enter trance states all the time throughout the day without even realizing you know when we're driving you know for instance if we're driving to work and we remember leaving the house and suddenly we're at work it's like what where so is that <laughs> how the did same? i get here i mean and it's just sort of you know yeah. it's just it's that state and just it's taking advantage yeah. of, of just that that slightly different level of consciousness to gain a little bit more control over what we are experiencing in our body and our brain sounds like daydreaming to me it, it does it does but it's you know but it's you know it's daydreaming, but you know, but taken to the next level. It's like, wow, yeah. I can actually, you know, get something accomplished well, while I'm doing this fantastic, you know. You I, know. And it's interesting because I mean, we we go in and out of trance. So there's something, you know, there's some. Our brains have evolved yes. to to do this naturally, right? So there's got to be some some reason why yeah. this is happening. Talk and about so just sort of understanding that is, is yeah. Talking about feeling safe, you have to feel trust and safety with that person, right? Because imagine the vulnerability you would have to be able to go into that deep state. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, I think a lot of people also, they think of hypnosis as, uh, you know, sort of the entertainment version. Yeah. <laughs> Where oh. you see the person on the stage and they think they're, you know, you, you make them think that they're a chicken or something like that. And that's, yeah. so there's the entertainment form, but then the the psychological hypnosis and the, the, the hypnosis we use for treatment, yeah. that Dr. Navidi and others use for treatment is is, is much different. I just want to get some last thoughts from you. Sure. Anything else you want to want to add at the end here? No, I, I think probably, you know, my perspective as a primary care doctor, you know, and I, you know, I mostly support um, patients with chronic pain. I'm not being, I'm not necessarily the one that's directly treating them. There's some patients that I do, but I think what what is really important to understand, especially from the primary care standpoint, is seeing pain from a through a slightly different lens. Again, you know, kind of getting back to that biopsychosocial lens that we've talked about and, you know, just really taking the time to understand a patient's pain experience and and, and guiding them and helping them come to a point where they feel that they might have some control over this. You know, it primary care doctors, I mean, we have the luxury of seeing our patients a lot and yeah. we, uh, you know, can know them through a lifetime and we have, you know, we can develop, you know, great trust and um, good relationships. So we're actually in a, a point where we can be effective coaches, if you want to put it that way towards um you know towards getting better and feeling better and it, to me it's just it's just good medicine absolutely family doctors uh, primary care practitioners are just they're the heart and soul of healthcare and we need more more of them <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> I know we do yeah. in Canada. I'm not sure what it's like in the States. No, in the and, U.S., it's, yeah, we're, we're also in crisis here where there's yeah. just not enough. And unfortunately, the ones that are, are you know, are completely overworked. Yes. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I'm, you know, my practice, I didn't discuss this, my practice is um, a concierge style of practice. So I actually limit the number of patients that I see. Um, I get to spend more time with them. Uh, they can see me more frequently. Um, for me, it's it's nice. a model of better care. And oh, yeah. I have a luxury. Yeah, it's, it's a very, I'm very lucky to be in the situation. But uh, that's why I have a platform where I can actually spend more time exploring this with nice. my patients. But nice. unfortunately, that's not the reality of what most yeah. primary care doctors and what most you know patients experience themselves. Exactly. Well, we, uh, we're only a province of a, mi- a million people, but we have at least 80, almost 90,000 now without family doctors in our province. That's, that's Isn't that insane? Yeah. That's, that's, it's, that's, it's very yeah. sad. Yeah. I found, um, uh, and not that I don't have any shares, or I'm not getting paid to make this promotion, please. <laughs> but I, I think you might find, um, now there's some aspects of Alan Gordon's book that I don't agree with. I actually tried to interview him because uh, I, I really found that he made a lot of the things that we think about around mindfulness, desensitization, really practical. And it's a great resource for patients. Uh, it's called The Way Out. And he there was a really nice podcast. It's called uh, Science Versus uh, Chronic Pain, Can Our Brain Fix It? Um, so they interviewed uh, uh, Alan Gordon and a patient with a lived experience of chronic pain, as well as a, a well-known researcher here at uh, one of our major academic universities is Dalhousie University, uh, Dr. Hashimi, uh, who's done a lot of work on the non-invasive neuroimaging. It's really insightful. So it's uh, it was the podcast from October, I think it's 29th, 2021, but it's a great listen if you ever want to have yeah, a listen no, to I'll it. And to then and it, it, it was yeah. actually a patient that brought me the book. Um, so I thought, oh, okay, I'll read this. And then I'm like, wow, you know, some of this stuff is really cool. That's something that because it, it, it's a resource for the patient, but also for the primary care practitioner and ourselves, or even me as a whatever environment I work in, because I use these skills every day. There's not a, an environment that I don't use them. Um, yeah, so it sounds like you wear lots of different hats. So you just well, <laughs> you small... reach the patients in so many. But so it, many it's also levels. it's not that I um I mean it's still a, a, it, what happens is that you get you gain insight uh, and you start to realize some very unique um, challenges, but also unique solutions that um, that allow you to kind of see patients in different settings. Uh, what my colleagues will say, so in our pain management clinic, it's a, pro- it's a basically a pain self-management program. So we just we just have this once a month, but I work with, um, uh, uh, she's a social worker, a psychologist, oh, sorry, social worker, social worker, oh, jeez, my God. Okay, I'm getting tired now. This is it the licensed uh, psychologist, clinical social worker? Yeah, pardon me, yeah. <laughs> the licensed clinical social worker. Yes, exactly. So the social worker, yeah. the, the yeah. Uh, occupational therapist, the physiotherapist, therapist and myself. And so we work as a team, obviously, and I just love it. I can't imagine as a physician functioning by myself in in these very complex environments. But what happens, and we've all sat around and talked, is that there's this ripple effect, because once you start to dive into some of this stuff and start to find ways of of helping and managing patients live, you know, significant quality of life, you want to improve their quality of life, you start to find yourself doing it in all kinds of different environments. And uh, so it, it just carries over into the different spaces that we go into. So I've seen it in um, my addiction work. I mean, what is it? 40% of patients who live with substance use disorder have chronic pain. So talk about complexity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And also yeah. in our palliative care population, someone, p- patients who have had, um, 
you know, say a, a diagnosis of cancer, uh, many of those patients have also had a previous diagnosis of chronic pain. So you can just imagine the degree of suffering that can occur at that kind of situation. So, um, so it's very helpful, I find, to have some for all of us to have some kind of skill in this area. Absolutely. We don't have to be experts. No, I find, yeah, no. And I, you know, I find that, um, you know, collaboration is key. Yeah. And that's something that as, I, you know, I've gone through, um, you know, 20 years of practicing, you know, you know, I think in the beginning, either maybe you just don't know or you think you can do it all. <laughs> you, know, no. you just put your head down and do it. Now, I, I you know, I, I seek out collaboration. You know, yeah. I've got my, you know, my pain management folks. I've got the the mental health team yeah. is critical. And so I, I rest on, on them a lot and you know and then there's you know other you know cardiology nephrology other you know other um specialties yeah. but i the collaboration is what really oh, yeah. um it, yeah. it helps the patient and as a primary care doctor again going back to this i sometimes i feel like the quarterback you know because yeah. we have to know a little of everything <laughs> and just and i say make sure everybody's playing you know playing well in the sandbox together it's kind of exactly. my job but and then and be the number one advocate for the patient and you you're right i mean i often see primary care as the quarterback i tell uh, physicians when i'm working in emerge i said i'm not a physician that's going to fix things i'm a triage physician i'm just going to say who goes home who stays, <laughs> yep, who, yep, you know, you then, then I can get the other level of specialty to fix it, right? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Cicely, it was awesome to talk to you. So thank you so much and have a great day. Well, thank you so much. It's great talking with you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.